welcome to I'm Loving Your Work. Today on the show, I'm really excited to have Rob Flood. Rob is one of the co-founders of The Final Whistle, a company which looks at helping elite athletes transition from playing into retirement. As we've seen in the media over the past couple of years, this issue has become a lot more prevalent as many athletes struggle to come to terms with the end of their playing career. This issue was thrust into the spotlight early last year after the tragic death of former Wallaby Dan Vickerman. And as the sporting landscape becomes more commercialised, I think this is potentially a problem we're going to see more, as more athletes find it harder to make the transition into normal life. Rob and I have a lot of shared interests in the areas of sport and mental health, and he was able to provide a lot of insight into the field of sport which I find so interesting. I hope you enjoy my chat with Rob Ford. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having this chat. Uh, I, I met you the other day at, at a podcast conference, actually. And, That's right, yeah. Uh, and it was quite incredible, that the overlap between sort of our, our interests, uh, yeah. obviously yeah. with sort of hel- helping people find what they want to do and that sort of thing, and, and having the, the whole sport and mental health sort of side of things. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to le- learning a bit, a bit more about you and your journey. So I suppose we'll start with when you are a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> Probably an astronaut. Um, I, no, I, I think it always revolved around sport. Yep. Um, I, I wanted probably, if, if you ask my parents, sports journalist. Yep. And then my brother, I think, said, why don't you think about being a photojournalist? And I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. And this is sort of early teens. Um, and as life sort of goes on, I, I ended up um, on... Uh, at, at the university doing a business degree because I didn't really know what what, to, what else to do, which is the, um, you either, if you don't know what you want to do when you're 18, which is a fairly significant number of people, I would imagine, uh, you either do a business degree or an arts degree, <laughs> which is fine. It's just, I think university teaches you a lot of soft skills about meeting deadlines, um, networking, going, you know, I went to an all-boys school, so it was the first foray into, um, you know, having female friends. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's lots of clubs and societies that you can get involved and just kind of be yourself without the pressures of the, the modern world. So, uh, sports journalism, definitely. But I think I got to a point where I, I my thinking was probably not hundred percent in that I thought, ah, oh, there's no money in it. Yeah. And, okay. And, and yeah. How many, I look back now and I go, wow, you know, sliding <laughs> doors. Um, but as you'll no doubt you know, get out of me in this interview. Uh, I think you can't really look back at your past and, and say, oh, I should have done that or I regret, you know, you, you can't live in the past. I look at what I've done in the last sort of 10, 12 years uh, in my career. And yeah, there were moments where I thought, oh, I, I really don't want to be doing that or, or you know, I don't like this. And, and, and I think that's, you know, that's everybody. But I look at all the skills that I've picked up over that journey and I go, okay, well, now that I am in the sports industry and I have kind of landed in the job that I was working in um, or wanting to be as a kid, uh, I've picked up a lot of soft skills that I probably wouldn't have otherwise got. 
Absolutely. Well, 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 yeah, looking forward to hear a little bit a bit more about how you got there. Uh, but so when, when you were sort of going through business school, this sort of stuff, you sort of sound like someone who was quite driven at that age in terms of knowing what you want to do in terms of a, a kind of distinct occupation rather than, you know, I want to play sport or I want to be involved in sport. If you're looking at sort of kind of journalism and then photojournalism and, and stuff kind of more specific, was there a bit of a, a conflict then within you in terms of, I suppose, applying yourself in an area that may not have been your, f- your first preference in terms of where you wanted to spend your time? Are you talking about the business degree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, as, as, I, as I mentioned, I think the, the word sports journalist kind of came up. Um, now, obviously, I'm from west of Melbourne um, in a place called Cape Town, um, South Africa. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, not that you could tell. Um, and so I, uh, you know, growing up in effectively the sort of post-apartheid era, um, you, you know, South Africa was very, very new to the sports world and the sports stage. So, uh, you know, our, our heroes were, were obviously sports people, but we had no reference, you know, with the rest of the world. Uh, what we grew up on was very much state cricket and, and state rugby. And, and so, um, you know, the world was this kind of big daunting place where, you know, wow, that's that's interesting. Like, I didn't realize we, we actually could compete at that level or at that stage. Um, so when the when the notion of sports journalism was running through my head as a, as a potential occupation, uh, you know, in school, I'd, I don't think I gave much thought to it. I just thought it would, yeah, I'll just do it one day. Um, and um, I, I do remember, though, uh, that a lot of my English essays – a lot of my Afrikaans essays, which is a language we had to study. Um, I, I probably even think I did a couple of maths projects. So, you know, all, all the subjects that I did at school, there was some element of sport involved. Um, I think even science projects, I managed to, you know, wangle an idea about sport. So as, as, as much as I wasn't probably as, as a superstar performer on the field, I certainly was thinking about stuff off the field, about journalism and business and, and stuff. But then I, I, yeah, I just got to that point when I had to make that decision about what I wanted to do uh, or what I wanted to study because that's just what people do. You know, you go to school, go to university, do as you're told, you know, eat your veggies, um, help old ladies across the road. Um, but uh, I got to that point, I was like, oh, I'm not sure about the sports, you know, journalism. I don't think there's any money and so therefore I'll just go and do a business degree. And I think, you do, you know, you talk about conflict in that decision-making process. The, the conflict has been there for, for 10, 12 years in that career. So, yeah, I, but, but here I am. And so what point did you notice that change at all in terms of, obviously, you were, you were in, uh, you were sort of had committed to that track of, of going down the business path of things. At what point did you think, this just really, I can't deal with this anymore. I've really got, kind of got to follow my passion a bit more. Um, yeah, no, good question. So I, I, I left university um, no clearer on what I wanted to do in life. Um, and I was I just turned 21. Um, and so I did what most South African kids do uh, who uh, can't get a job in South Africa because of certain circumstances. I went to London like most of my class. <laughs> um, and, and so I landed up there and, and for about, oh, you know, six or seven years, I ended up just, you know, drifting. 
uh, from I, I didn't have that many jobs. I stayed. I, I, I got into banking eventually, um, purely because of money. Uh, you know that that lifestyle fun in London funded my um, funded my sorry the, the the jobs in London funded my travel, which was my release. And so it was almost like I was a bit of an ostrich. Uh, I put my head in the sand and I just kind of went, you know what? I'll go to work nine to five um, and and pick up the paycheck and then go and spend it on travel and experiences. And I do not regret that for one minute. I'm not here to say that, but. Uh, I I definitely look back now and I think oh there were certain times that I probably could have you know gone off and done what I wanted to go and do. Um, so yeah, so that's that's how I ended up uh, in London uh, doing that, and then I came to Australia and I said right I'm going to be a sports journalist finally. And then you know I I looked at the salaries and then I looked at the industry and I was like yeah pretty tough to get into melbourne yeah. <laughs> and then uh looked at and then i got offered a job in a bank and the, the salary was double i was like yeah okay can't really <laughs> pass that up but you know all all along and i encourage listeners to do this um you know you, you probably not you're probably going to take a few attempts to try out in different careers and uh or you might do stuff that you're not passionate about but it pays the bills and and, and then some uh but keep your toe in the water and that's what I did I remember the moment I um I was at it was about 2008 I'd been in London for about four years I'd already booked uh, a travel six months of travel um that I'd you know funded and and I remember the moment I was standing at Wimbledon station and I was like I'm going to Australia South Africa's playing Australia in the cricket series there and I had a friend who worked at a, um, a publisher that published the South African newspaper. And I just texted him, just out of the blue. I often do this. I just randomly text people for an opportunity. And you know what? Nine times out of ten, it comes through. Um, and I just texted him. I said, hey, mate, um, you know, I'm going to Australia. I really want to write now. I'm ready to kind of, you know, dip a toe into the water. Uh, what can you do? And within a week... He'd sorted me with a press pass in Australia. I ended up watching a couple of the test matches here. Got to go to a lunch at the, you know, at the MCG. I had to, I was travelling. I was a backpacker. I had to go and <laughs> borrow a suit of someone. I mean, this is, you know, shoes at the works, yeah. not underpants. But um, and uh, yeah, so I ended up doing that, and that was my first sort of foray into the world of sport. And then I just got involved in sports. Uh, sorry, the Springbok Supporters Club in the UK was writing for the South African. Um, and then when I came here, um, I got involved eventually. Ultimately, I got involved in the Australian Rugby Business Network. Um, and one thing led to another. And Yeah. yeah. And so. so why do you think your uh, priorities, I suppose, change from, I suppose, more financial motivation to then being motivated by what you wanted to do? Was there a kind of distinct moment that you remember that changing in your own head or was yeah. there an event that happened? So, so as I said, you know, London was all about uh, funding travel and lifestyle and enjoying myself and to some degree putting my head in the sand. Yeah. But, you know, I've watched the Springboks and the Wallabies and, and the All Blacks all around Europe. I've traveled to 42 countries, you know, I've done all that stuff. And, and so, so London was very much about funding that lifestyle. Then I came to Australia and it was all about funding a bit of that uh, and then also funding things like furniture. Uh, and then 
and then I got a girlfriend here, which uh, is now my wife and mother of my child. But uh, you know, so funding her uh, lifestyle as well. No, I'm kidding. I'm only joking. She's <laughs> she, <laughs> she's uh, she's great. Um, so uh, then it became about funding a wedding, you know. And then we've just bought a, built a house, and so you know, was funding that. And I got to a point about two years ago, we'd paid for the wedding. I travelled to forty two countries. I've, you know, we'd paid for the house uh, deposit you know what what kind of next and i and that was where i got to that point where i was like right i've been in corporate for you know 12 years now i've dipped my toe into the side you know for the better part of or it would have been about seven years uh as a side line um in all sorts of media roles and and whatnot and writing and blogging and um networking all that sort of stuff it's now time to mm. to get serious before we have a kid mm. and that was very much the motivator was if I don't make the jump now, I'm going to be in a situation where we're going to have a kid and I'm going to be having to, you know, pay for that. And it's just going to be the next excuse in the long line of excuses. And I'm going to get to the age of, you know, 50 and I'm going to be completely unfulfilled. Mm. So one thing that you mentioned that I find really interesting is obviously having no regrets about the time that you spent overseas or whatever, but it's one thing that we we quite often see these days is people, you know, even sort of whether they've finished school, whether they've finished uni, is going overseas because they don't necessarily know what they want to do. Do you have any tips for someone heading overseas in that similar sort of situation in terms of what they can look out for to identify their sort of passion in different ways? Yeah, and, and, you know, we use the word regret uh, a lot. Um, and, you know, somebody told me a number of years ago, never have regrets because that's what you wanted to do at that point in your life. Um, and, you know, it's either a lesson or a test. Uh, a, situ- a negative situation is always a lesson or a test. Um, and, look, I mean, I, I won't s- sort of sit here and say I've had the perfect path to where I, um, where I am now. Uh, I've, I've been toying with this in my head for so long as to, okay, here I am. I'm great. You know, it's great. Life's good. I'm 35 years old and, and I'm finally fulfilling my passion. And, and it's in my head. I keep thinking, my word, if I just applied myself or just, you know, had a change in mindset, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been there so much quicker. But at the expense of what, you know, I've missed out yeah. on, uh, you know, I would have missed out on potentially a lot of life lessons, uh, skills, stuff that I now bring to the table that the average person in sport probably, you know, who's done what they were told to do, which is a sports journalism degree or, or whatever, uh, they've got, they've got the perfect career path. I've gone off the beaten track. You know, I've, I've become, a, I was an e-commerce manager. I was, um, you know, a business analyst, I was a project manager, I've got all these skills that I now bring to the sports industry, which is, you know, probably not, you know, it's not the average path. Um, So in terms of travel, I think the only bit of advice that I can give is, instead of waiting four years to, you know, when I first did my first little dip into the media world, I, I probably should have just done that from the from the outset. I knew that that was my passion. I actually got offered a job just before, like two days before I flew out to London from South Africa. I got offered a job in sports media, and I turned it down because I said, "No, I've got a, I've I've committed. Um, I'm going to London, and um, and and I probably saw the lifestyle and the partying and the you know being able to travel. That was probably more important to me at the time." Um, so the only thing that I would say then is, is, you know, 
sure, do do whatever you have to do to to pay the bills. Um, but if it's not something that fulfills you, you know, we could, we all get 24 hours in a day, right? So what's to say that you can't do an hour a day writing or reaching out to someone who's an influencer in the field that you want to be in? And just little little bits of um, – have you read a book called The Slight Edge? I haven't, no. It's a great no, book. Yeah. And, and the, the premise, underlying premises is that, you know, you don't just – uh, prepare for a marathon the day before you know it's lots of little incremental um broken down chunks of action over time consistently not you know five days and then you miss out 20 and then another five days it's consistent action over time and it causes that exponential growth to where you want to be and you tend towards success so um that would be my only um, my only major tip. I think that's really interesting as well. One thing that we heard from from Ronsley Vaz, another another guest that I've had on the show, is just bits about his sort of attitude in terms of always looking for something to learn. And uh, from it, it sounds sort of from what you're saying there that, that you have quite a similar attitude. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've I actually wrote on my resume um, that you know I and I and I've actually this is one belief that I've held firmly since day dot. You know, I got <clears throat> offered all sorts of jobs in London about, you know, that could have been paying three times more when I was in my formative years in London. And the one thing I've always believed is that, you know, a career is a, is a continual progression of skill attainment and skill collection rather than job title collection. And that's something that's been right from the start that I believe in. Because at the end of the day, you know, people employ you for your skills. Absolutely. They don't yeah. employ you just because you had a, you know, a name on your door. Um, and, and so that's something I believed right from the start. And I, d- I remember having the conversation with a friend of mine in London. He was all about the, you know, the, the job title mm. and the, you know, the, the self-esteem and the, you know, the, all of that sort of stuff. And I, and actually he, he said, why don't you just go get a job? Cause I was complaining about money at the time. So <laughs> made sense. But, um, you know, you get oh, you could easily just go into the city and get a job for you know three times as much. And I said, yeah, but I'm in a situation where I'm kind of the senior manager at an age of 22, and I'm learning so much that I'm picking up all these soft skills that so that when I do eventually want to go into the city, which I did about two years later, but when I do. I'll be able to be, you know, I've got all these soft skills that I would bring to the table and make myself more marketable. So. And, that, and that's a great attitude because one thing that we, oh, that you know, I come across with my friends and even myself at times is, uh, particularly around this young young twenty sort of age, early twenty sort of age, uh, you can feel almost kind of stuck in a job where you, you're kind of stagnating and uh, you, you feel really ready to move on to the next step, but you might not have consolidated all the skills from the first job. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that one must realise is just the career education as well that I've come to know with the, the the work that I've done with the Final Whistle and also with the sister company career hq um uh is you're probably going to have about eight careers in your life you know it's like that's a that's a that's a staggering uh, statistic um you're probably going to get made redundant at least once in your life um you're going to be out of work for periods of time and this is the reality of the situation and so so being prepared for those periods is is important as well um but uh yeah just just that career awareness and and also the other thing is i think it i think the stat is in 
probably in 20 years' time, something like 60% of the current landscape of jobs that exist are not going to be around due to technical disruption and innovation. Absolutely. So, you know, it's all very well saying, oh, I'm going to be this, you know, for one, and, and, you know, we seduced into this notion of I'm going to be one thing my whole life. Mm. And it's so wrong. Um, you're not mm. because that's the reality of the environment we live in and the landscape we live in. Um, so I think having that awareness and career awareness is a vital, vital skill to have. Absolutely. It's, you know, obviously on the show, the first thing that I ask is when you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up sort of thing? But I actually kind of don't like that question because, you know, like you, I wanted to be a sports journalist sort of growing, growing up and, um, even went off to uni to study kind of sports media sort of thing. And, uh, I think I really got into the trap of wanting to be something rather than wanting to do something yeah. in the sense of I thought if I was to identify myself in a certain way, carry myself in a certain way, things would kind of fall into place in that sort of sense. Yeah. Uh, but it's not obviously the way things work. You, it's more about doing things and, and just inherently in the nature of that, your role is likely to change over time as you sort of grow, you develop more skills and yeah. having such a kind of varied career path to get to, to, to where you are now and there might be other people out there who may think you know I've wasted two years in this job and now I'm in another industry or I'm working in a job that I sort of didn't you know study with my degree sort of thing there's so much value in kind of having a really unique path because as you say everything that you do is informed by everything that you've done up till now as well so it's yeah percent yeah. Um, yeah no yeah so so tell us a little bit about where the final whistle came from um, so it was probably a number of years in the making. Um, I'd, I'd never considered the, the business idea uh, until my wife and I went back to London in 2012, just before the Olympics, actually. Uh, and one of my friends uh, invited me to a, um, a it was a business networking event with one of the big banks uh, from Australia. They were over there, um, and I, oh, actually, I'll just tell you who it is because <laughs> it's going to make sense. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a Westpac networking event. Um, I hope you don't mind me mentioning corporates on this. No, that, no, yeah. no worries at all. And um, the event was uh, Gail Kelly. I was there to speak, and he invited me in my capacity uh, as a sort of rogue journalist, as I <laughs> like to term myself, who had interest in South Africa, obviously, and Gail's obviously a um, South African uh, originally, and then also I'd I'd done a bit of work. Obviously, I'd lived in Australia for two years prior to that, and so he invited me along in a sort of dual capacity um, to go and see if we could perhaps sell some ad space in the in the South African and the Australian Times. Um, not that it ended up being that way, but anyway. So we were standing there, and I was watching. I literally got to meet her, um, and as I spoke to her for about two minutes. And I, we were watching the uh, Chad Leclerc, Michael Phelps uh, Olympic oh, race. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and our conversation got interrupted. And this sort of screen came out of the side and suddenly we watched it. And I'd literally met her two minutes before he won and she hugged me. Yeah. And it was just this most surreal moment. And then we got chatting and she kicked her shoes off and started <laughs> dancing. It was like she's the most amenable person I've ever met who is probably the most, you know, one of the most powerful women in the world at one point. And we got chatting and she introduced me to this other bloke 
who was working uh, with Timmy Horan, uh, the ex-Wallaby, uh, in one of the divisions at Westpac that deals with sport and entertainment. And I got chatting to this guy, and he was telling me about that he looks after you know the financial interests of you know sports stars and entertainment stars and it just got me thinking and the juices flowing and I a few days later I met up with him and and um and just got chatting a bit more and I started to formalize in my head the question which we kind of want to answer which is if I'm an athlete and I finish up my sport what do I do next Hmm. and over the course of about four years, it just I wrote down ideas, I researched, and I did all this um, preparation. I started to formalize like a almost a product. Um, but I thought, oh, there's no one out there doing it. Hey, I, I could be onto something here. Um, and I thought, oh, it'll be a one-to-one mentoring program that I would be able to put put athletes through. And um, cut a long story short, I ended up at the Rugby Business Network working part-time and I, I, I looked at, um, sorry, there was a guy in the UK, Paddy, who had set up the Life After Rugby program in the UK. He was working one-on-one with, with rugby players. And so I got chatting to him and I said, well, why don't we do it in Australia? And I'm prepared to, you know, to run it and use the research over the last four years that I built up. And um, just before I was about to sort of scale back on the job that I was in, um, which, I, which I was enjoying, it wasn't too bad. Um, and just before that, I uh, one of the, the, the head of the RBN here introduced me to a guy by the name of Greg Mum, who's Dean's um, brother, um, and you know a successful uh, rugby coach and, and um, businessman in, in his own right, and. and you know, so I, I chatted to Greg, and over the course of about two months, we started, you know, teasing out some ideas, and eventually, we said um, we, he actually offered me a, a role, um, which was a surprise. I, I thought, you know, it's going to be a business, so I'd already had the chat with my wife about, you know, this is potentially going to be a six-month uh, period where we're going to, I'm going to earn no income, you know, there's going to be nothing. And then I, I remember going up to Sydney and meeting with Greg to sort of sign contracts and stuff. And he off, and he, and he actually handed me the <laughs> job description with a, with a, uh, you know, an hourly rate and everything. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, yep, cool. Yeah, <laughs> just played, played cool. And um, yeah, so that's that's how it all that's how it all started. And then yeah, we took about a year or so of. Um, research and speaking to sports orgs, athletes, all you name it, um, and trying to formalize, you know, a, a product out of it and a commercialization out of it, uh, and then just to, as it happened, Paddy returned to the UK, uh, returned to Australia um, just over a year ago, and he joined the team, and yeah, that that's that's the final whistle, yeah, in absolutely. a nutshell, yeah. <laughs> with a bit of a foray into uh, my, um, you know, name dropping Gail Kelly yeah. as well, <laughs> and. How have you noticed, I suppose, the landscape around, I suppose, mental health in sport? And uh, obviously, it's it, as I mentioned in the intro, it's been quite prevalent in the media this year with, with Four Corners and obviously everything that happened with Dan Vickerman. Mm-hmm. At that stage when you were starting up everything, you mentioned that you sort of, like, you kind of noticed that there'd, there'd be a bit of a business in this. But had the wheels started turning in terms of bringing all of, all of this stuff to the fore in a more, I suppose, public light? Mm, mm. No, or, or did that sort of happen along the way? Um, 
probably more along uh, along the way. Yeah, that must um, have been quite validating in some ways. Yeah, yeah, and it, and the timing of all of this sort of stuff has been interesting to say the least. Um, and it's certainly brought in brought to the the awareness of the of these issues that that athletes have. And look, you know, there's a lot of athletes out there who who aren't struggling, mm. who aren't who who are nailing transition um so and and or who believe that you know they've got a plan b for when that time happens and um i think the like anything in life you know the the, the what do they call it the the minority you know the tail tail wagging the dog yeah, yeah, you know so yeah. we hear all these stories about athletes struggling and 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 whatnot yeah, yeah. and look it's it's it probably is the minority yeah okay um but that said, there's still some element of being able to help everyone. Yep. We obviously can't, but uh, that's just not how, how business works. You, you you pick and choose a topic and you go for that and you niche. Um, and so our we, we're not so much on the mental health side of things. Sure. We used our, our backgrounds and our with a bit of Greg's IP with Career HQ, and we used that to realize what well, actually no one was really doing or nailing the career education, career options management um, side of things. And all three of us have had very interesting off-the-wall kind of career paths to where we are now. Um, and and so we thought, well, why don't we have a crack at doing the career, you know, something with a career focus. Uh, and, and part of that was also born out of um, chatting to one of the mentors, and he said that, you know, if they if an athlete can, uh, while they're still playing, while they're still chasing the dream and chasing gold medals and whatnot, if they can answer that question, what do I do next or who am I, while they're still playing, that that biological deduction should ins- ensure or at least help them uh, solve a lot of the other transition problems like financial distress. Um, you know, relationship breakdowns, mental health, all that sort of stuff. Um, by finding, you know, you, you and I, we had careers. We go to work, you know, ten hours a day. I mean, it's pretty much a third of our adult life we spend working. Now, for an athlete, they are in a very, very institutionalized environment. It's it's very much structured. You know when to eat, when to put your underwear on, you know, like that sort of stuff, even tell you which underwear to wear, you know. As soon as they come out of that environment and they're in a normal environment, or normal, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it can be a shock to the system. So, um, so yeah, so just having that, that fallback option is, 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 is a vital thing. Um, the other thing that we've, we try and, I dare, dare use the word preach, but the other thing we try and get across is, um, that performance can be enhanced through, uh, you know, having a list of, or, or at least some other outlets, but and and by reducing your athletic identity and having some other identities, as it were, um, you actually will create a performance benefit and a performance outcome, um, self-esteem, confidence, problems, uh, problem solving, being able to interact with new members of your team with coaches, with people of different levels in the organization, um, and just having that, that outlet as well. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be studying. It doesn't have to be a new career. It just has to be something else. 
um, well, something to escape to for yeah. want of a better Well, term. there is that thing where, you know, we, we see athletes almost not as people. <laughs> they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're figures, you know. We, Correct. You know, we, we look so much into their private lives and all this sort of stuff and, and project so many kind of foibles on them as yeah. if, you know, that they shouldn't have those sort of thing because they are in the public sort of light. It's the hero. But they are. The yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that... Yeah. I imagine that would be so hard for athletes to, I suppose, form an identity outside of that when it, it's so hard for, for young people these days, I think, you know, 18, 19 anyway, to, to form an identity in the real world. So when you've had, say, 15 years of consolidation of, of a successful career in sport, how are some of the ways that people are able to overcome that? Well, primarily through, uh, you know, recognising that, you know, and I and I we spoke the other day about, uh, you know, the the notion of the analogy of the tree, and and so what that is is, you know, a tree if it has one tap root, uh, and you, you know you imagine the the leaves on the tree and the branches of the tree are all your soft skills that you get from your athletic pursuit and your sport, such as, uh, you know, your discipline, focus, your um, self awareness, all that sort of stuff, problem solving. Um, leadership, uh, all those soft skills are, are, are the branch in the trees. But if you only have the one tap root, that tree's going to fall over as soon as a bit of wind comes along. And the wind being some sort of disruptor, such as, you know, being dropped or, or finishing your career early due to injury or, or that sort of stuff. So the analogy then is okay, well, why don't you have some extra roots, two or three? Like every, like all of everyone else does, really. You know, we have our life at uh, in in work, and then we go home and we go fishing, or we you know have some sort of pursuits outside of work on the weekends. Um, and and it's likewise with an athlete, they need to have those other roots um, to stabilize the tree. Um, and and likewise, uh, businesses, or at least a lot of athletes, don't actually understand that their soft skills are actually in demand mm. by businesses. They think because their peers have been 15 years in the game, they've got that, that march, they've stolen a march on them. By the time they come out of that, it's it's fear. And it's it's like, oh, geez, I haven't actually had that experience. But what the technical landscape and the technical disruption that, you know, in, in the world that we see today uh, has taught us anything is that attitude and soft skills can't necessarily be taught and that they are acquired over a number of years of whatever your pursuit is um and the technical skills and and the you know the actual competency of the job can be taught in six months and that and they're changing every six months so if you've got the soft skills so you've got the right attitude to learning and growing and being um you know thrust into a new environment such as work <clears throat> then you're actually ahead of the the curve where your peers don't have the natural leadership discipline um focus on a on a goal teamwork just arriving from meetings on time uh, the the number of stories i've heard from athletes that are now in jobs you know and they like they'll be at at a meeting 5 minutes before which is courtesy right and people strolling in on their phones, having a talk about, you know, the, the footy on the weekend, which is fine. Um, and, you know, the next thing, the, the athletes are like saying, what have I walked into? You know, like this is, is this corporate life? 
going for four-hour lunches on a Friday, like which is all has its place. And I, you know, I did my fair share of that yeah. in London <laughs> yeah. on a Monday. Um, and uh, <coughs> this is these are all the sort of things that that go on in a working, a normal working environment that are completely foreign to an athlete where they've those soft skills that they've bred are, you know, I arrived to a meeting on time because I'm letting a team down, which are not normal necessarily in a corporate environment. What are some examples of, of how that is transferable in the sense of uh, would, so, would something that someone pick up from a team sport differ from something that someone picks up from an individual sport? That's a really good question. Um, and I suppose the, the natural tendency would be to say yes, because you know, in a team environment, you, you're sharing the workload, you're sharing, you know, the victory, sharing defeat, you're sharing each other's emotions. Uh, in a in an individual sport, yes, you probably do train with other people, um, but at the end of the day, you know, why do you why do you train? You know, why do you uh, why do you practice? Why do you go, you know go to training? It's to perform on the day, and so if you're in a te- if you're in a team environment. You can at least G each other up or be G'd up, um, and if you make a mistake, that's fine. You, you just make sure you don't make it because otherwise you're letting the team down. Whereas a individual sport, you, you know, you potentially letting a whole country down. You know, <laughs> it's like it's, uh, it's not. You know, the the team sports are yeah. There's always oh, this person dropped the ball or they missed the tackle that cost the World Cup or, or, or whatever. But you'll still be judged as a team. Um, Whereas a tennis player or a rower, an individual, you know, rower or, or whatever this case may be, will will be treated a lot worse in that respect. Yeah. Um, swimmer. So, so, do you think the different demands that sort of team and individual sports place on people does that sort of lead to, I suppose, different outcomes later on? Yeah, I, possibly. I, I still think that the the underlying um, soft skills that an athlete develops are still there, whether it's a team sport or, or a, um, or an individual sport. Um, you know, the, I, th- I suppose that the individual sport probably have more of a sense of if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Uh, and, and I can't blame anybody else, you know, if the, if something goes wrong. Um, uh, but I, I still, yeah, I, I probably believe that there's a, there's a tendency that, there's all the they generate they get so many soft skills and leadership from um actually no there's there's an example leadership i mean how do you display leadership in as an individual sport you you your lead i mean leadership could be defined in that sense as okay well i i'm a leader of example to other tennis players yeah um, curios for example yeah, yeah and i'm a leader in the sense that uh that i uh you know, inspire a, a, a country and, you know, they'll stay up to watch me at, you know, in the middle of hours of the night. And that, that is leadership. I mean, that's, you know, you, you're getting a, an outcome where people are inspired to go and do their own thing, not telling them what to do, but take their own action for a better outcome. So um, whereas leadership potentially in a, in a team environment is more structured, uh, you've got your leadership group, you've got your captain, you've got your coach, um, and... And so you, you you would tend to grow into the leadership role uh, in, in a team environment. Um, but like I said, I come back to the original point. I think all these soft skills, however you acquire them, they're still going to be acquired. Um, I haven't seen 
too much difference in in one sport to another in terms of those soft skills. Maybe some of them are more developed in other skill in other sports, but not significantly. So I wouldn't have thought. And so, do you think it's easier now for an athlete to go through a career and kind of smoothly transition into retirement, or say say ten years ago? Well, ten years ago, there was probably less of a professional nature of yeah, sport. Yeah. Um, and so this wasn't such an issue because a lot of people were, you know, I would say a lot of people in the system already uh, had either studied or they'd done something or, um, you know, you look at netball, for example, it's only this year that, you know, that they're full-time athletes, um, you know, being in in that system. Um, you know the the cricketers, the the female um, AFL stars. You know that that is almost a reverse transition yeah. into sport. Yeah. So they've done a career first, and then they've now become full time athletes. So um, so in that sense, how would you say it's I suppose an adjustment of lifestyle or a change of identity that is I suppose the greater source of a struggle for an athlete. Uh, probably oh, a bit of column A, column B. I mean, yeah, without, yeah. without trying to sound like a politician and sitting yeah. on the fence, uh, it, you know, we, we talk about um, performance mix and we talk about, um, you know, lifestyle mix and success mix and all these sort of things. Um, so, for example, the transition mix, as far as we see it, is a combination of, you know, your career aspirations and choices and making sure that you've got a plan B or a dual pathway. Um and something else to fall into as opposed to um, fall out of. Uh, uh, it's also uh, your financial situation and making sure that you are covered for a few years of, you know, transition could take anything from, you know, generally speaking, we think it takes about three years to fully transition. And there's some people out there, like, even Timmy Horan said, you know, he's still coming to terms with the transition yeah. 16 years later, uh, which is quite an, what well, was quite an interesting point. Um, uh, so it's a so it's a combination of that and then physical as well because you're detraining you physically you know you know you don't go to the gym for three weeks you go back to the gym you feel like you've just you know been run over by a bus but um, so there's the physical aspect which a, a lot of athletes get their self esteem from as well um, and that team lifting environment that sort of stuff uh, and then there's uh, relationships so we talk about um, networking and um, your your uh, family relationships, friends, all those sorts of things where you might not have gone and spent a lot of time with your friends over the course of 15 years of an athletic career. Now suddenly, you, you know, you, you kind of feel like you left without them, so you, then you might go back into the sporting environment to try and keep those friendships alive, but people move on, you know. Um, it's like going back to an old employer, <laughs> you know, it's... Oh yeah, is that, okay. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure about you. You left this company, you know. Um, and so, so yeah. So we talk about career, physical, um, uh, financial, um, and relationships, and then last of all, just mindset, and then the emotional struggle that you have uh, potentially, uh, and just getting into that right. Okay. If I if I can envision myself in in five years time, what would my life look like? What would an average day look like? What would a perfect day look like? Um, who do I talk to? What kind of conversations do I have? Uh, who are my friends? 
having all those sorts of things in place before you transition. And you never know. I mean, it could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. You just never know. Um, well, I think that's one of the things is that the nature of sport is that it's so cutthroat and it can be so brutal at times that it, it might be a 10-minute kind of interview over a coffee sort of thing that lets you know that your career's over. Well, so, If you're lucky, you get a coffee, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. So, yeah. But I suppose what more can clubs do to prepare uh, clubs and, and I suppose sporting bodies for uh, individual sports? What more can they do to provide a safer environment for people to transition through? Yeah, and, and that's an interesting topic because a lot of the sports organisations have come in for a bit of criticism, um, rightly or wrongly. And I think we need to be careful of that. And, um, you know, our message is certainly that of more of a positive one, that the word athlete or the phrase athlete transition shouldn't be such this negative thing. It should be an exciting period of time. You know, there's this notion that, oh, the final whistle, the final, it's like an end. It's, you know, darkness. It's it's not. It's like, think about a a game of, and I'll use rugby as an example because that's the the background that, that I've had. But, you know, at the end of the 80 minutes, if you've if you've won the game, that's the final whistle of the game. Are you going to be feeling good if you've won? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you know. So yeah. and and so you move into the next week, which could be an analogy for moving into the next um, or, or moving to another team. It, it that could be the analogy for moving into your next career. So I think th- there's a lot of and, and the media will you know they, they'll they'll they're they're cotton onto something and they'll just run with it. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the sporting organizations have been sort of caught with their pants down in this respect, um, possibly unfairly so, because like I alluded to earlier, you know, 10 years ago, most of the people in the system perhaps weren't, you know, they'd, they'd had something prior. Now we're in a situation where kids coming out of school are going straight into an elite sporting environment and a high-performance environment without having had you know, this concept of, oh, I need to fall back on something because they are sold the dream that they're going to be successful. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and so I think with what sports organizations can do better, it, it's just simply providing that element of uh, recognizing that mental health, um, part of which could be having an identity outside of sport uh, and, and career awareness for the next journey um, things like exit interviews uh, and just understanding, like managing the process for leaving the sport, that's possibly an area that they can do better. Um, but I think sports sports organisations are are moving with the times. They are evolving as uh, you know, nobody's perfect, um, and and so that's probably something that's that, and certainly where we are, you know, best placed to provide that um, you know sort of service. Uh, and 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 just also just recognise that 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 the mental health side and the career side are actually part of a performance outcome. Yeah, it can actually lead to better performance. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a one guy who plays for the Rebels tell me uh, that five years ago he was suffering depression. He he had no other interests outside of. Um, rugby, he would drop a ball at training, get bollocked, and just completely, you know, would just everything would just vicious circle of depression. And 
the moment he started networking and and having some outside interests, uh, doing a bit of study, uh, going to networking events, talking to other people, he, he drops that same ball at training now, and he's thinking about the thing that he's going to do in later in the in the evening because it's not it's like oh well, I can laugh it off it's not you know it's not the end of the world you know yeah. <laughs> this guy's not going to fall on my head absolutely yeah <laughs> didn't know? have the attachment to correct yeah yeah and 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 that's a real practical example yeah um we interviewed another guy um and I'm not even going to pr- pretend to uh, pronounce his na- name or attempt to pronounce his name um Jerry who is an ex Brumbies uh, prop and um. You know, he studied while he was uh, while he was playing for the Brumbies, and um, he just said the difference that it was marked the, the the difference between the guys that had studied or had some outside pursuits and dual pathways, and the guys that hadn't. He wow. said the guys that in the change room who who had studied would be able to talk to you know senior management or talk to a range of people well, yeah. all the way below them if you consider that sort of um, class system but uh, the guys above uh, sorry the guys that hadn't had that training or at least background and study or, or whatnot they they struggled to, to make conversation and then he said it what it extended to was actually actual on-field in scenario problem solving because at the end of the day whether you're a sports team or a corporate team you are there to solve a problem for an outcome. And and so the you know, Jerry was saying that he was able to formulate different opinions, perspectives, and, and be able to then formulate a, a solution to the to the on field problem. And these guys were struggling to do that. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I suppose uh, as part of that, uh, you, you're putting your problem solving to the test in, in different rigorous situation, situations just outside of purely that sporting contest, I suppose. So I suppose problem solving is like a bit of a muscle in many ways. In the, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you the, get muscle memory from absolutely, you know, remembering yeah. how, to, how I solved that problem previously could be how you solve it in the future. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Alistair Clarkson, for example, is is someone the Hawthorne AFL coach who looks at other sports. Hawks. Yeah, <laughs> um, who looks at other sports and and takes examples from them in terms of their tactics and all that sort of thing. That's not actually something I'd really considered before. In terms of there's so much just in general life or whatever that you can look at look at and apply to sport as well. That's really yeah. interesting. Sport is life, and life is sport. Uh, yeah. There's oh, so many. There's so that. much. So much crossover. It's scary. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. And, and I think that's where athletes can embrace that life after sports stuff it's yeah, not supposed yeah. to be this dark period of time in your life yeah. it's actually something to be really excited about um and we like i said we want to send a fairly positive message about the word athlete transition we don't want this negative stigma yeah. to be attached over it um you know there's guys at, at saracens do it really well in the uk the rugby club you know they've got guys in there that are um some and this is where career awareness comes into play a little bit. You know, most people like myself thought I'm going to chase the money instead of the the passion. Uh, and there's guys who are setting up their own coffee uh, lines of business. They're setting up um, beer companies or craft beer companies and, and using their p- uh, public profile and their influence within the sporting environment to sell their product. And and like how exciting would that be? Yeah, you know. So it's not this. It shouldn't be this daunting thing that 
you know, you have to go through. I mean, yeah, there are going to be times when you, there's no ways that you can walk into an office environment and recreate 80,000 people cheering for you. Yeah, absolutely. Or being in an Olympic Games where you know that there's millions of people following you, you know, your every stroke in a, in a, in a rowing boat or um, every stroke in a swimming pool. Like, there's just no ways you can create, recreate that in a, in a corporate environment. Uh, but there are other ways for other things that you can, you know, recreate. So, yeah. And so how much of a difference does, I suppose, fan culture make a difference to the way an athlete responds to retirement? So I suppose let's, let's take Australia and New Zealand, for examples. Hmm. Um, you know, the Australian cricket team gets announced today for the Ashes. Sean it's Marsh. It's already been announced, yeah. Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah there, it has. there might have been a lead. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Sean Marsh um, comes in for his eighth time or something. And... You know, he's, oh, he's so mal- smashed over social That's the media. Th- he's getting yeah. he's so maligned, sort of thing. Whereas, yeah. you know, I look at the, the New Zealand All Blacks, for example, and and they're someone they've almost had a bit more of a rolling kind of roster, I yep. suppose, for yeah, lack yeah, of a better yep. term. Yeah. In the last few years, you know, Sonny Bill Williams, for example, kind of swans in and out of the sport whenever he wants, <laughs> sort of thing. But well, he, um, he is the true definition of an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we, yeah. we often get caught up in this notion of, oh, he's a rugby player or yep. he's a cricketer. Or he's yeah. a, no, they're an athlete. Yep. And an athlete is someone who performs physic, a physical you know, action for a desired outcome. You know? and, and, so, and, and likewise, you, you have a lot of soft skills in your physical ability that can be applied across sport. So you know, it's, it's, it is an interesting one. But yes, carry on. Yeah, so <laughs> um, yeah, I, I suppose Australia, as an example, is somewhere that does have such an intense sporting environment uh the you know going back to that whole thing of of kind of athletes as public figures and that sort of thing that's as much in australia as anywhere i think um just because we're so sort of yeah so into sport and all that sort of stuff you know you look at dusty martin and sort of in the afl you know we've heard about it what he's doing overseas with swanee in the off season sort of thing it's sort of um it doesn't help when they're posted on instagram yeah absolutely exactly (laughs) um but does I suppose, do you notice a correlation in terms of the intensity of the landscape around that sport and, and the passion of the fans and, and the high expectations of people and people struggling? Or, um, or, or are there any sort of cultures and systems that do do it really well? Yeah, and I, I suppose there is. You know, if you look at Olympic sports, no, nowhere to be seen for three years yeah. um, by the fans. And then suddenly out of the woodwork the fourth year, the Olympic year comes around and we're all, you know, everybody knows what, you know, oh no, that was bad form on the gymnast, you know, yeah. uh, when he, when he double parked instead of Kip, you know, like, and, and so, yeah, exactly. And, and, and so no, but nobody gives two hoots about them in the three years leading up. Yeah. And those guys are getting, they are training their guts out for, for three, well, for four years of which they're only relevant for two weeks effectively. Which is quite sad, in my opinion, because yeah. there's some really, really top athletes in that in those programs. Absolutely, yeah. Um, some great people, some yep. great figures uh, who don't get the exposure that they deserve. Whereas a sport like rugby union or cricket, you know, they're, they're, it's a consistent nature of that. So I suppose then the fallout on the other side is when they do retire. You know, you've got rugby players retiring and cricketers retiring all the time, pretty much, you know, either in April, May or midway through a season. But generally speaking, it's one period of time uh, per annum. 
with a, an Olympic roster, nine times out of ten, the, the athlete retires post games, and then you know then they then they've got four years to wait to see their peers perform you know the next time or go back to training you know two three months later. Um, so I suppose that that sort of mix of social media and the just the relative cadence of each sport does lend itself to potentially you know some sports looking like they're doing better than others um so yeah um now obviously this year it was it was tragic to hear of the passing of Dan Vickerman um someone who had a, a very successful career as a wallaby studied at, at Cambridge overseas obviously a very sort of intelligent person and and it was sort of five years after he he retired that that he, his struggles sort of came to a head mm-hmm. how hard is it for athletes to move on in the sense of you know say time heals all wounds and that sort of thing but how hard is it for athletes, I suppose, to accept their their new life that, you know, as you say, you're never going to be able to recreate the, you know, the feeling of, of 80,000 people or whatever. Um, so so how, how hard it, are athletes usually able to sort of get to a place where they're able to fully function as someone who would have never had a sporting career? Or is that not necessarily something that you're going for? Or No, so, and this is where this whole dual identity, dual pathway comes in. And um, and I know, you know, Dan did study at Cambridge and it seemed like he was doing really well. I think we've also got to remember, like, we could design a, a best fit program for athlete transition, but at the end of the day, we are still dealing with one person at a time and each person's got their own needs, fears, desires, wishes, that sort of aspirations. Um you know, a guy like Dan had incredibly high standards for himself, incredibly high. As I imagine, a lot of sports people do. They they do, um, and and so those expectations were perhaps not being met on the other side. And and look, he did retire also through injury as well. So we got to take that into account. Um, and and I, but I think starting when when athletes go into their sport from a young age. That is when we need to start preparing them. Yeah. Um, they need to be their their normal needs to be. I'm an athlete, but I'm also someone else outside of being an athlete. Um, and the you know likewise, people are so negative about social media. Oh, it's this that the next thing keyboard warriors and oh this guy's you know too busy flashing his you know <laughs> whatever. Um, things that he's advertising or brand that he's advertising on social media instead of actually getting down to bloody work and, you know, training hard and blah, blah, blah. But I think we need to be careful because um, it's not social media that's bad. It's the user. Yeah. You know, it's like anything in life. Yeah. So um, there's good, bad, there's good drugs, bad drugs, you know? (laughs) So, um, so I I just think we need to be careful of, of, panning social media too much um used in the right way to to grow your brand and your and who you are as a person i think it's great and also you know it's been a wonderful thing for just getting into the private lives of of athletes that that want to share that there's athletes that don't and that's cool like johnny wilkinson is not a big person on social media that's his brand that's who he is he's a very private person and that's cool we should respect that um whereas other guys flaunt it and get it out there and, and that's their brand. Nick Cummins is a great example, yeah. you know. 
Um, he is someone who is using his his social media presence and his brand and, and who he is as a person to very, very good effect. And it's not annoying. Mm. I mean, yeah, yes, I, I see a man in a set of tradie underwear and I go, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I, I just think we need to, to be careful of that whole... And so when everything happened with Dan Vickerman, obviously being in the industry of, of helping athletes retire, I imagine it was obviously tragic, but Absolutely. I imagine super motivating as well to, to want to create a system that makes it easier for people. Yeah, and it's always tough when you, you, know, you do something out of tragedy because that's effectively how I got into this um, environment or at least how I decided I wanted to change. I was working in corporate sort of three and a half years ago, hating every minute of it, um, in a in a team in an environment which was it wasn't toxic, but it was I just it wasn't me, and that's fine. It, you know that team was that was the way it was, and um, <clears throat> and I got to a point where I needed I needed to go and fulfil my my passions, and but it was born out of tragedy. There was a friend of mine who was killed in a bus. Um, in in South America, where we just come from, you know, and spent, I think we calculated we were on thirty one buses around South America, and this is a very very good friend of mine that him and his twin sister got killed tragically in this bus, and I mean it whacked me in the face, and I I I sat you know for weeks and months or weeks probably moping around, going you know why him why why does it have to be like this, and but all the time in the back of my mind going. I'm not living in alignment with who I am as a person. I'm not fulfilling my dreams. I'm not fulfilling my passions, desires. And I actually ended up changing jobs about a month later because of that turnaround that I'd gone through. So it's a difficult one to speak about because you, on one hand, tragedy shouldn't spur you into action. It really shouldn't. You should, t you should take the bull by the horns and take control of the situation. But that's life. Life there's, there's, we all die, you know, at some point we all die. And, and so often tragedy can be the catalyst. Um, and, and look with, with Dan's case, we, we knew him and, and Greg certainly knew him, um, had done some work with him, try to help him along. And, um, so it was a massive, massive shock. Uh, we were actually due to see him speak at the, uh, that, that weekend, the following weekend, uh, in Sydney at the, crossing the line um athlete transition summit and he was meant to be one of the speakers and we got him on the on the bill um so it really really was was tough to tough to handle um but at the same time you know everything we we do is kind of informed by that yeah you know what we we could have we almost feel like we could have done something yeah you can't. Absolutely. Some, somebody's yeah. going through those sorts of struggles and, and yeah. comes to that conclusion. There's not much you can really do apart from prevention. Yeah. And prevention is better than cure in this instance. Absolutely. So well, it does It does sort of make us feel that, yes, we do need to, to not ensure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it goes a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier in the sense of having no regrets and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily a, a huge believer in, say, everything happens for a reason. I don't necessarily believe that in its most literal sense. But 
Um, I think, you know, if we get dealt a hand, you're, you're given a decision where you can either kind of run with it and obviously it's going to have a profound effect on you and it's going to kind of create intense emotions intrinsically within you. Um, but you can either let that kind of... Di- it's going to dictate sort of your, your path in the next little while. So you can either let that dictate it in a negative sense or let that, as you say, kind of inform and motivate you to to move in such a positive direction. Absolutely. Uh, You know, one of the athletes that I'd I'd spoken to, um, he was an ex-hockey Olympian, and he actually said, uh, I think what happened was we were due to speak over Skype. It was a small little thing, but it meant so much to what he said. And And my Skype just would not work. Like I tried phone, computer, you name it. It for some reason it wouldn't work. Then we tried WhatsApp. Then we tried Facebook. It just nothing would work. And I, I was just having one of those technical meltdown days. And he said, "As cool as a cucumber," because I felt I was letting him down, obviously. And he just said, "As cool as a cucumber." He just said, "Mate, don't worry. It's all about how you respond." Yeah. And I was yeah. like, "Whoa, that's deep." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was yeah. so true, and that just for me, that's so, one of the skills that an athlete does have is how you respond. Absolutely. You know, um, you get you you get your pants handed to you on a weekend in a footy game or individual sport, tennis game, whatever the case may be. The the game next week is going to happen whether you like it or not. Maybe not so much in tennis because then you lose. <laughs> yeah. But um, but the game next week is going to happen whether you like it or not. If you don't change your thinking and if you don't respond and stand up and be counted, well, you're going to get the same result. Yeah. So, yeah. I think there was a, a really, really great point that you made earlier on about uh, every negative experience is a lesson or a test. Mm. and Sometimes th- both. So Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think it's also up to you a little bit in terms of how, how you choose to take that. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I also think like some, uh, and I've been guilty of this in the past, and uh, you know, especially in your twenties when you're young, carefree, you don't have all the trappings that you have when you're in your thirties. But it's you feel the world does owe you something a little bit, and and I I felt the same in in a corporate environment. I was, you know, I was getting nowhere because my attitude was wrong, completely wrong. Um, you know, instead of trying to create options outside, which I ultimately did, but I didn't do them to the best of my ability. I could have, I could have opened a lot more doors. Um, absolutely. I think you, you know, it's how you, how you respond to those situations and say, okay, well, if it's not going to work that way, how can it work? Ask that question. That's a very valuable question. Um, just cause it won't, just because I'm getting nowhere down this path, there's got to be other ways, and that's where your sort of creativity comes through, and um, and and yeah, resilience. Just I think kids are not getting taught resilience, and you know, in this in this day and yeah. age, and that's a, that's a snowflake. That problem, yeah, that's yeah. probably one of the uh, oh, it's it's to be honest, it's it's the parents as much as it is yeah, the, yeah. the child. They, you know, that's their normal, you know. Um, so I think um, just being that's probably one of the the biggest soft skills you can have is that resilience and just questioning everything and just being able to say, okay, well, it didn't work that way. How can it work? And now, would you have any advice for someone who who might be in a in a job similar to you were in the corporate world where you may feel, I suppose, stuck a little bit, but you do have a passion elsewhere? What what would you advise someone who's wanting to really take that step and, and you know, grab life by the scruff of the neck and, and really imprint themselves on it? It's it all comes down to well, firstly, how how bad do you want it? 
Um, so that's the first question. If it's something you just, yeah, okay, I like, I like it, you know, or it, if it doesn't fire up your engine every morning and, and, or, or every day that you think about it, it, then it's probably not something that you really are passionate about. Um, or it's a situation that you're currently in that you probably need to change elsewhere. Um, so that's the first thing. Then, then the second thing is, is just go out and talk to people. You'll be surprised at the number of people that aren't as big and, um, big and scary as, as you think they are. Um, you know, in, in another sort of environment that I was in, we used to talk about a chicken list. And it was all the people that you thought were big and scary and would, you know, knock you back and say no. Uh, and you start with them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because if you can if you can get over the hurdle and get in front of those people, well, what can't you do? Yeah, well, you know, and yeah. it's scary. I mean, yeah. it is scary. And look, you'll be surprised at the, the the response that you get from those sorts of people. Um, they might not be interested. They might not want to, or they might not be able to, and that's fine. But what's the worst that they can say? No, honestly, like, are they going to shoot you? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, even if they tell you it's the worst idea ever, blah, 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 okay. Yeah, again, it's <laughs> a lesson or a test, yeah. Well, exactly. And and so you, you know, the, the way to respond to that is, okay, well, maybe I didn't pitch myself right. Maybe I didn't, you know, you've always got to ask what's in it for them. You know, why are they, you know, and if they're so popular and, and, and so big for their boots, well, Chances are, uh, you know, they're the sort of people that enjoy um, status mm-hmm. and self-esteem and that sort of stuff. So learn, how, learn things like self-awareness. Uh, you know, your different personality types respond to different things. Uh, and that was a big game changer for me was not only did I realize, okay, I'm good at certain things and I'm really crap at other things. Um, how can I mitigate the things that I'm crap at? How can I, you know, improve? enhance the things that I'm really good at um, but also recognize that it's that exists in other people um, and for you know for example like I just said you know if somebody's into status and that sort of stuff well big them up yeah. uh, you know don't 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 feel that you shouldn't have to uh, give them a bit of an ego because that's what they want yeah. and if you what, what do you want out of the situation well you want some advice yeah so <laughs> you know do what you got to do and it's not it's not buttering up to people it's just recognizing what they what they want out of life and what what ticks their what flicks their buttons um and and doing what's necessary to get the result and now Rob just to finish up is there anything that I haven't asked you at all that that you'd really like to to get across to our listeners oh jeez where do we start <laughs> <laughs> yes. we'll have to get you back this has been a really good chat i've really enjoyed it as i said at the start you know we have I think such similar sort of passions and absolutely, yeah. Uh, and yeah. So yeah, I've really got a lot out of it. Thank you. No, no, no. That's that's been great. I mean, I don't really have any other sort of pearls of wisdom that we that that spring to mind. Um, I, I suppose the other. Well, no, I do. I do. I got one. I got one. The biggest thing that I avoided at school and that that I avoided at university um, was was reading. And now I, I've got into reading a hell of a lot of books and, and, I, and I read and I make notes and I sort of try and apply them all the time. Um, there's a lot of downtime that we have in life, whether you're on the train or you're on, in the car or on the shitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's be honest. Uh, and uh, I think 
there's there's a lot of tendency to either play Candy Crush or check Facebook and um, do stuff that is not life enhancing. Now I'm not saying that Candy Crush or Facebook are bad. I'm just saying there's a time and a place. Don't do it all the time. And one of the big things that I have done in the last sort of probably five six years is start reading a lot. And the reason why reading is so good for you, um, not only do you experience life. Oh, you experience people, other people's stories and life, and that's how you learn lessons is through stories, right? But you, when you read, you're reading it in your own in your own um, voice, and so it's not just audiobooks are great, and that's good for cars and and stuff. Um, but you're hearing someone else's voice. When you read, you hear it in your own voice, and that is you, you have a lot better chance of remembering certain things. So. That would be my my, uh, my my go-to tip was 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 reading, um, reading lots of books. Yeah, well, as I said, and it Rob, doesn't have to be in an afternoon. You know, like yeah, talking, yeah. Read ten minutes a day. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. making my way through one at the moment. I can only handle about two pages at a time. <laughs> I have to put it down. But progress, but, not perfection. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, it's it's one foot in front of the other. Yeah. So. Well, as I said, Rob, thank you so much for coming in and, and no, having a chat today. It's, um, yeah, I've really got a lot out of it. And, and yeah, I think a lot of our listeners will too. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, thanks.